Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. Like most Americans, I commute to work by driving a car. In fact, on average, Americans spend almost 30 minutes each way getting to their place of work, mostly using cars, but sometimes propelled through their cities and towns by buses, metro trains, e-bikes, scooters, and everything else in between. Regardless of the method, the amount of time that we spend getting to work has fluctuated significantly across the past few years because of COVID. From 2019 to 2021, the American Community Survey showed average commutes dropping in duration by almost two minutes per trip, due in large part to clearer roads from a growing work-from-home workforce. But by 2022, average commute times had already started to creep back up by about 48 seconds per trip year over year, reflecting the longer-term trend of longer and longer commutes for American workers. And given this trend, I ask you, what better thing to do with all this extra commute time than to listen to a podcast? You know, Americans whose time is often occupied by commuting, household chores, and low-intensity tasks at work are increasingly living in a world stimulated by audio. According to the Pew Research Center, while terrestrial radio has seen marginal declines in listenership over the past decade, now almost one-third of all Americans report listening to podcasts at least weekly. We consume a ton of audio-only information about everything from true crime to politics to celebrities, even to the social sciences. But what if our ears deceive us? That's a question that has been taken up recently by a couple of enterprising undergraduate researchers as part of a National Science Foundation-funded project on audio deepfakes. Deepfakes are audio recordings that sound very convincingly like they were recorded by someone else. Their implications for our society are enormous, especially as we continue to rely on audio-only media, just like the one you're listening to right now, for information, for entertainment, and even for the transfer of personal information. And so as audio deepfakes improve, we're finding ourselves in a really big pickle. But thankfully, interdisciplinary science is here to help assuage our worst fears. A National Science Foundation-funded project that spans several campuses, including UMBC, has recently brought together sociolinguists and computer scientists to help understand audio deepfakes and potentially safeguard against their effects. Today, I'm delighted to bring you a conversation featuring two highly impressive researchers who worked on this project. Kifi Nwosu is an undergraduate computer science student from Maryland, who's worked as a researcher at UMBC all the way since high school, and is now a student at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Chloe Everett, originally of Houston, Texas, is a recent graduate of the Georgetown University Department of Linguistics with a minor in Chinese. Chloe is now pursuing a master's degree in linguistics, also at Georgetown, and has recently published content related to deepfakes in our very own UMBC review. I'm so excited to bring you this fascinating, worrying, and hopeful conversation about audio deepfakes and the promise of interdisciplinarity right now. Uh, 
All right. Today I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming two wonderful guests to Retrieving the Social Sciences. Uh, I want to say uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. I think that this is very topical and all of our listeners are going to find this to be of great importance to their ongoing daily lives. And so I first want to introduce uh, Kiffy and Wosu. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Kiffy. Thank you, Ian, for having me. Hello, everyone. Absolutely. Uh, and then of course, we also have Chloe Everett, who's here uh, to tell us a bit about the subject. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so the subject of today's uh, podcast is uh, one that I've certainly had some questions about. I'm sure that many of our listeners have had questions about. Um, I will say as a disclaimer, as an introduction to this subject, that to the best of my knowledge, and perhaps to the best of your all's knowledge, we are not currently the subject of audio deepfakes on this call, are we not? I don't think so, because I can see your faces. So I think we're probably in the clear that neither you nor I are being audio deepfaked at the present moment. Um, but I could imagine that our listeners are probably at least somewhat aware of this topic and probably at least a little bit concerned about this. So I, I, I want to start the conversation by asking you all, is this something that we should be worried about and why, right? What are some of the scenarios maybe in which an audio deepfake could be used to sort of mess up my ability to understand the world around me? Yeah, I can take this. So audio deepfakes in particular, and I'm sure we've all seen deepfakes on social media online. It's content that's AI generated and usually intended to manipulate or deceive. But audio deepfakes in particular is just the ability to reproduce human speech using AI. So this can be done through voice cloning or through text-to-speech. There's a wide range of stuff that's out there. And one sort of scary way that this kind of technology can be used is in fraud. So often banks could use automatic speaker recognition as like a biometric authentication thing. So your voice kind of becomes your password. If your bank has your voice, you can use that over the phone to get into your account. But if someone's able to clone your voice and if they know information like your birthday, then it could be really easy to hack into it that way. So that's a potential area that we've seen in recent years has become more popular. And these, these um, scammers can become a lot more sophisticated in these attacks. And also, as I'm sure like we're all familiar with, these deepfakes can reproduce the image of public figures and their voices and make it appear like they're doing or saying things that they haven't actually said. So yeah, like, like you said, this technology may not necessarily be targeting the everyday person right now, but it does become more and more sophisticated and more and more easy to access. So these are big concerns. There's a lot of unknowns at the present moment, and we can only expect this to become more and more prevalent in our lives. Kiffy, I want to get your take as well. Are we in trouble here? Or? <laughs> we are in pretty big trouble for so many reasons. The first one be that there is no robust or there is no set in stone method of being able to detect these audio deepfakes there is no software here where you like you put in an audio and it tells you it's been a fake like now we have like um, ai detectors text and ai detectors for code but we don't have ai detectors for images and or audios or video so with that being said as of right now if i know chloe has talked about like banks and frauds and misinformation like from public figures right but then if i, I want to bring it down to a, like a more smaller scale where it's like between let's say now your voice somebody picks up your voice it's a little call. It could be as little as you saying, hello, my name is Ian, or hi, this is Ian speaking. How may I help you? There's robust technology out there right now to replicate whatever anybody wants you to say with mm -hmm. the tiny portion of your voice that they have. And the thing is, the technology for this is getting way better. The technology to detect it is getting way worse. And 
we're in big trouble as the time goes on. I think that's the best way to say it. In terms of the definition of audio DJs and what they are, Chloe has explained it in the best possible way that there can be. And there's different types of audio DJs, like she said. There's text-to-speech or speech synthesis, where the input is text and the output is audio. So it's a very famous one is the Google text-to-speech, where sure. you type in um, something and then Google says it back to you. Or there's something called Speechify, where you type in something and you can select voices of like different famous celebrities and then that thing is being said to you, that's one. And then voice cloning is the other one I talked about earlier. This is the one that is more likely to be used for fraud. It's where the input is a voice and the output is a different voice. So I'm speaking, but there's some type of transmitter between me and the person listening that changes what is, that changes the voice being said. And the other one is mimicry. Mimicry, we're at a phase where we're still trying to figure out is mimicry AI or is mimicry not? Because mimicry is basically like, I am just flat out say, I just flat out sound like someone else. I just flat out sound like a celebrity. That's an example of mimicry. But like the main two types of audio defects or AI generated audios per se are voice cloning and um, speech synthesis. Wow, this is a lot more sophisticated, a lot more complex than even I realized. And you know, I want to also react a little bit to something that you said, which makes me a little bit alarmed as a host of a prominent social science podcast, which is that you're mentioning that even with a little bit of my voice, somebody might be able to create a pretty faithful reconstruction of the way that I talk. I have a lot of hours of my voice out there on the internet, so they might even be able to do a better job of, of recreating my voice than maybe somebody who's just got a small batch of this kind of uh, test audio to work with. Um, but I'm also really interested in this from like a social science perspective, not just as a, <laughs> a subject of worry for my own personal life. Because it seems like, you know, a, a lot of people probably out there are thinking about this from the perspective of like, you know, this, this idea that we're able to create just the impression of somebody's voice, that it might sound sort of like their vocal cords are producing the, the content. But language is a lot more complicated than just like whether somebody has like a deep voice or a high voice or a gravelly voice, right? I mean, this is something that, that is kind of pushing the frontier here because it's not just about the ability to modulate the register of the voice or something. It's also about somebody's linguistic patterns too, is it not? Um, so somebody's dialect perhaps might have a pretty strong impact on how this works. Um, is, that, is that something that this AI is able to handle or is it really just, you know, the text that you're writing, it's kind of just replicating the, uh, the words on the page, so to speak, or is it actually able to handle and, and replicate our dialects as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Thought about a lot and done a lot of research on. Um, and like Tiffany mentioned, there's different methods. So voice cloning, yeah. if you, no matter what dialect you speak, a cloned voice is going to replicate exactly what you sound like. So there might be some things that it misses, like maybe there's some vocabulary words that you use because of where you're from sure. that the AI might not know to replicate. Um, but yeah, there's this potential to create deep fakes in all kinds of different dialects with all kinds of different accents. And so I think we're familiar with voices that sound like Siri or Alexa that are very standard and we can tell that they're, you know, machine generated. Hopefully. But I think a lot of people <laughs> might, <laughs> right. They might not know that these um, AI generated methods can also replicate voices that are not we, what we would consider standard. So yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there. Wow. Yeah, Kiffy, do you have other, other insights? Yes, here? I have a CS um, machine learning data science background, more or less than the social sciences. In the past couple months, working with Chloe at Dr. Mallinson, I've 
been able to learn a lot about like the accents that come with different voices. And I can tell you that AI has, it finds it very hard to not, whatever you give it, it's what it's going to give you back. Like the whole point of machine learning specifically like, is that it's learning. So if you're feeding it data with like, let's say a South Indian accent, right? And you try to replicate someone who has like an American or an English accent, it's going to keep the accents being given back to it while making or while trying to modify to make new ones. However, with the data set that I've been working with, I've seen a lot of accents that are not like, AI is so good that if even with text-to-speech, you're able to modify it and change it and play with it however you want to make an accent. So it's not just Siri. You can make it a male voice with like an accent from like the middle of the South, or you can make you can make it say whatever you want. It's just a matter of how well versed are you with the accent that you're trying to replicate. Because again, it's not human. So whatever you tell it is what it's gonna do. As someone who's not well versed in linguistics, I will find it extremely difficult to make audios because you know I don't know what this person sounds like. I don't know how it works. But that doesn't mean that I won't be able to do it. So in all, the accents, they all the I know every accent is different and they all play into how the audio is being perceived, but it's not impossible to replicate it. It's not one of those things that can happen. It, it can happen and it's not necessarily easy, but it's pretty doable. So Chloe and Kiffy, I mean, these kind of insights together are both giving me a lot more unease, but also maybe potentially a silver lining for the future, which is to say that interdisciplinary research, it seems to me, is pretty darn powerful in this realm. And collaborating like this across the social sciences and in sort of STEM computer science fields to understand this problem, it almost feels a little bit like the old, you know, Spider-Man quote, like with great power comes great responsibility, you know, um, by your powers combined, then we could really be onto something that could be effective at replicating language in a way that would be virtually undetectable, even to sort of native speakers of dialects, right? You'd be able to replicate that stuff and have people who maybe, let's say, from a specific region of Appalachia say, oh yeah, this voice sounds just like somebody who actually lives in that specific region. If we had, right, the context knowledge of what those dialects sound like to be able to feed it to algorithms uh, to do this, to this replication. At the same time, and this is what I'm hoping you might be able to tell me about, um, maybe by your powers combined, there's also some potential solutions to this problem. Is that the case or, <laughs> or not? Um, I especially am interested in your work on this NSF-funded project that you've been working on. Um, has this collaboration led to any insights into how to potentially spot deepfakes, how to potentially overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, so I, like I've said earlier, I do the computer science or the data science and the machine learning aspect. And then Chloe and Dr. Nowenson and the rest of like, the team, they do the linguistics part. And I just want to give like just a very dumbed down version or a very simple version of how both of our powers come together. So what Chloe and her team does is that they annotate audios. So they spend hours, at, that's where I give them, that is something that most of us on the data science end will probably not do. They spend hours listening to clips. We had to listen to over a thousand clips where they wow. listened to those clips and they annotated it. There's these things called EDLFs, Expert Defined Linguistic Features, and they are basically features that are in spoken English language and they're what we're using as like the baseline of detecting audio deepfakes. And the five EDLFs we have are pitch, pause, breath, burst, and sound quality. 
there's five of them. I want you to remember that. And while they're listening to these audios, they're listening and they're annotating to see if any of these five of them are present. And not only are they checking if they're present, they're checking, is it anomalous? Is it normal? How long it is? We have presence or absence, of course. We have anomalous pauses, normal pauses. And these are all things I've learned in like the past three months from the linguistic experts. And then what we do on the computer science end is that we, now we have this data, we have audio clips. I'm like, okay, in this audio, there's pitch, pause, this, and this, and this. Now we work to find so-and-so EDLS on the audio. So we write the code, we do all the machine learning, and we are currently following an unsupervised approach because we are still trying to narrow it down to what exactly the EDLS are and the best possible algorithms. So when I write my code or when I'm working on my algorithms, I get timestamps of where there's possible EDLS, and then I map that to what Chloe has given me to see if, oh, I found something here. Did Chloe find something there? Or, oh, I didn't find something here. Why, is, why did Chloe see something and why can't I find it? It's how can I fix my code now to, or fix my algorithm to be able to pick up the things Chloe has found. So with that being together, an interdisciplinary team, it makes it way easier because you're getting the best of both worlds per se, because I, and like I said, we have no very minimum knowledge on linguistics. So if I didn't know oh, that there are EDLS, if I didn't know that there are, there's a pitch or a burst, or I learned a new word called timbre, which is also a way voice could sound. If I didn't know that all these things ex existed, there was no way I'm gonna be able to find them. And now that I know that they are there, I'm going to be able to find them. And on, in terms of our solutions, like for the long terms, like I said earlier, we are looking at EDLS in real audio. We're looking at EDLS in fake audio. And there's a specific presence or absence of EDLS that help us determine if an audio would be possibly real or fake. So as of right now, we're still feeling like the preliminary phases of like trying to figure out what types of EDLS we're seeing and how to detect them. And then the next step from here, at least from my part of the project, is to see if there's a correlation with the types of EDLS being found and the types of audio defect there is. Like for example, if you listen to an audio and it had like no pauses and it's just talk, 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 you get a little concerned on like why there isn't any pause. It tells me this audio is a little fishy and stuff like that. So the end goal would be to have a very robust algorithm that is able to sift through all these audios that our amazing experts have annotated for it. And then with these audios, you were able to find the right EDLS or the right lack of EDLS we're able to find out if the audio is possibly going to be real or fake. But all this is from a CS or a machine learning perspective. I think I'm going to hand it over to Chloe to give us, like, from her linguistic background, what it feels like to be on an interdisciplinary team. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for, for all that detail. That's super fascinating. Yeah. Chloe, tell us about your perspective on the projects, please. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our approach to this problem is kind of novel in a couple of ways. And one is that it's interdisciplinary with the social sciences and computer science, data science. And another way in which it's different from existing approaches is that we're centering human listeners and human perceptual ability. So like Kiffy kind of explained, the other linguists on the team, like me, have backgrounds in sociolinguistics and specifically variationist sociolinguistics, which I know that's a lot of big words, but it's basically just the study of in what ways human language can vary. Because it does vary a lot, but it varies in pattern systematic ways and in ways that are impacted by social context and social factors. So what we're doing to approach this problem is taking this knowledge of language variation, specifically in spoken English, at least for now, 
And then we're listening to AI-generated speech, finding linguistic features that are easily discernible to just the average human listener, and that also distinguish fake speech from real speech. So another component of this project, outside of the algorithmic, robust algorithmic detection we're trying to um, achieve, is a training program that we're developing. So we're working on a curriculum, and actually we have given some trainings to some UMBC classes, um, of teaching people how to listen to these EDLFs or expert-defined linguistic features that we've we've um, created or we've I don't know if created is the right word that we've heard in the clips. So um, our training program is to equip just the everyday person with tools to listen for cues that an audio might be fake. Because I know we've all seen like image deepfakes, I'm sure, and you get little cues like. I've heard one that's like, look at the hands. Yeah. These AI generators, they're really bad at making hands. Fingers? They have like eight fingers, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but there's not resources like that as much for audio. Like I don't, really before this project, I didn't know like, what should I listen for if I think an audio is fake? So that's the kind of thing we're also trying to develop from a social sciences perspective to fight this problem. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I think it, it speaks also to just the power of sociolinguistics in helping to address this problem because language is socially embedded and we as humans who use language to communicate like we are even doing right now there's so much about tone I mean, so much about all these different sort of edlfs as you're talking about um that we use as a subtext to understand the intention of speech and so um to think about the human ear basically and our brain power as this incredibly powerful tool um is is a really interesting one right because you know we often think about computers as being at this stage in in the world far more potent essentially as processors than we are. I mean, we can just look at the chess chess uh, examples of AI versus humans. You know, AI now beats humans in chess, you know, all the time and go other kinds of board games, that kind of thing. Certainly that, that, uh, that, that's been an ongoing sort of realization is that for a lot of complex tasks, computers are much better than we are at this stuff. But language is really an interesting frontier in this, in this world, just because language is so socially determined and so socially coded. Um, that humans actually are much better trained perhaps today than computers at, at this kind of detection. So that's super interesting. And I'm so glad to hear that this um, collaboration has been so fruitful um, and especially excited to hear that you've been able to uh, apply some of this back to UMBC, <laughs> right? Uh, to be able to, uh, to bring this back to the, to the campus um, because this project, is, as we've seen, right, has kind of spilled past the disciplinary and uh, institutional bounds of UMBC as you all continue uh, through your, your work. Um, yeah, Kiffy, I think Kiffy wanted to, to chime in. I yeah. just wanted to also bring up the fact that no matter how hard we try, like, and this is from a machine learning data science background, AI is never, never say never, but I don't think it's gonna be as perfect in detecting audios because everybody between just the three of us, we all sound very different, have very different accents and put that on a larger scale where there's 7 billion people. So that is why our training specifically comes in very handy because yes, we have AI, but again, you're not gonna hear an audio deepfake and be like, hold on, let me pull up that algorithm real quick and see if it's real or fake. That's where the listening comes in. And we call it listening to learn. That's one of one of our papers. The title is one of my favorite titles. But yeah. point being that in in terms of it being an interdisciplinary team, I really don't think we'll be as successful as we are without the other. At least from my end, I don't think I'd have been able to do all of this without the help of the rest of the team. And I also think that from a sociolinguistics end, I'd like to say that 
it also be the same. And we're also targeting different audiences. Like even though we're together, we also target different audiences in the sense that my algorithms are still targeting people that actually know how to use these algorithms and actually could try to implement the algorithms I'm working on. But with the social linguistics, they're targeting like the everyday human. Like we, you're sitting and you're listening and they're teaching, they're teaching you, oh, this is what you look out for. If it sounds like this, it's probably a buzz. If it's this, it's probably this. And when these two worlds come together, we're reaching twice the people that we probably reach. And in the long term, maybe out, outside of UMBC, outside of maybe within our different colleges, audience, keeps getting bigger and bigger because with interdisciplinary teams, like, I mean, social linguistics and computer science, those are very two different things, but coming together, it's made a very killer project and I'm really glad on where we're at now. Yeah, I'm excited too. I really hope that we can follow up with you in the, in the years and months to come and see how this project has continued to develop and grow. Um, and also, I want to think a little bit about your own research trajectories as well, because you know, you're um, obviously students that have started somewhere in your research journey and then gone on to this really awesome project and beyond. And, um, you know, I wanted to kind of combine two questions, if you wouldn't mind just uh, giving a little bit of background about sort of how you came into this project. Tell me a bit about um, sort of your trajectory uh, from your first foray into research, how you got involved in this in the first place, um, to where you are now. And in doing so, maybe if you could uh, put an eye towards uh, telling us a bit about how uh, you might give advice to students who are hoping to replicate this pathway. It's an interesting way that I, I came to this project. So actually last spring, Dr. Mallinson, who's one of the principal investigators on the research team, reached out to one of her colleagues at Georgetown in linguistics, looking for a student to join the project who's interested in all these intersections of AI and society and language and also you know phonetic variation. And it just so happened that I had taken a class with that professor the same year and she recommended me for the RU position and the rest is history. So it was just felt very lucky that I came into this project and I've really enjoyed it. Like both Kippy and I have stayed on the project since last summer. Um, and we'll, I, I at least will stay on as long as they'll have me. Um, but in terms of advice I would give to students looking to do something like this, especially if you're an undergrad, maybe just starting out in your research journey, just from my own experience, it's really valuable to get to know your professors and going to office hours and being involved with things in your department. Like here at Georgetown, the linguistics department holds a little speaker series almost every week. So they have scholars from all over come over, give a talk. And a lot of the times the research was way above my head, especially like as a first year or a sophomore. But I still showed up and I think professors like recognized me and it was just a small way to start building those relationships. So I know this kind of thing is a little scary if you don't feel comfortable going to office hours, you don't feel like you have anything to say, I would really encourage you to try and do what you can to get over that hump and go build relationships with people. Because at least in my experience, my research trajectory would not have been the same at all if I didn't have those connections. So yeah, getting to know grad students as well. I would definitely recommend that too, if you have grad students in your department, because they're great resources. That's fantastic advice, Chloe. In part, I would say it's fantastic because it's the advice that I like to give to students as well, <laughs> um, to just show up, right? Um, and I will say, as as part of my response to that, that if there's any student listeners out there who are listening to this episode, um, take a look at the social sciences at UMBC and the uh, lecture series that we have going on. Um, you can look at the calendar of events at the CS3 website and uh, make sure that you uh, come out and attend some of these. And you never know what might happen. You might make a connection, um, as Chloe was mentioning. So. 
Um, it's true that some of this stuff might go over your head, but there might be a lot actually that really galvanizes your interests. So um, definitely great advice. Thanks so much for, for that. And it's great to hear a bit about um, how you got connected to the project, Chloe, and how uh, you'll continue to work on it in the future. Um, Kiffy, what kind of advice? And tell us a bit about your journey. I started um, interning at UMBC since I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, wow. So I started in a different department. I actually started with um, Dr. Charles. I started in the College of Engineering as an intern. Then by my senior year of high school, I joined this class. It was called Independent Research and where you had to intern and you know write a paper about your research. So I had already been working with Dr. Janesia and um, Sarah and the rest of the grad team for like maybe almost a year and a half by my senior year. So I was just like, oh, hey, might as well just keep working. Like I just, I went in as a high schooler. It was like my first ever experience. And I just never, I have, I had never, I just continued, right? So by, and I'm also one of purpose if I said I'm a first year, I'm a, my first year of college. So by my time I graduated, Dr. Janesia was like, oh, hey, you can't, you're done now. You're not a high school intern. You can now be like a REU. So an undergraduate researcher. So I just continued the program as an undergraduate researcher. And honestly, I, like Chloe said, I'm probably going to be here for as long as they, they had me. I, I've learned so much when I joined this program. I barely knew how to code. Like I, <laughs> I was, I was struggling to say the least and not to say that I'm still not struggling right now, but like I had like this bare minimum knowledge and they believed in me and they said, Oh, Hey, we see you, we see where you're going. I think you're going to be a great part of our team. And I just, and I've been working with them and for advice I would give, honestly, I'd say reach out to people because I sent an email to Dr. Janeja. I, I might have spammed her inbox. <laughs> I sent maybe one, two, three emails. I always followed up with her. I was like, oh, hey, I really reading your research. I really like it. I want to work with you and your team. So yes, always reach out. And you, because as a first year student, most of us don't have experience. And most people are held back by the fact that, oh, I don't have experience. I won't be able to do it. I honestly think that they don't, they don't expect you to have experience. So if I'm advising someone at read, don't be afraid don't let the fear of not having experience be the reason holding you back. Because at the end of the day, we're all learning, even as a team, as an eager team, we all learn from each other every single day. So reach out to people, get involved, but while getting involved, do it because it's important. And then my other advice is like, don't let anything hold you back per se. Like, you're not expected to have research. Like the work I'm doing, they didn't expect me to learn it. I had to learn it over the summer. and. I'm going to keep learning by the, end, by the end of next summer, as I'm working with the team, I'm going to have learned so much more. And it's, it's a learning curve at the end of the day. Like that's the whole point of researching. Every researcher here is a learner. And if you want to go into research, get ready to learn. Every researcher is a learner. I love that line. Um, another thing I love about your response, Kiffy, is that um, it really is sort of uh, the, the backstory of this is to try to defeat your imposter syndrome as much as possible, right? Because I think every researcher, and Chloe, maybe this resonates with you as well, every researcher comes to that journey with a lot of trepidation because they don't feel like they know enough to be able to do research. But in a project like this one, I think it's really clear that you're going to eventually kind of get over that learning curve and you're going to be able to start making really 
impactful contributions. Um, and how better to do that than to collaborate across disciplines, uh, collaborate even across institutions. Um, this is a really great project. And uh, Chloe Everett, Kiffin Mosu, I want to thank you again so much for coming on the podcast, talking us, uh, talking to us today uh, about this project, about audio deepfakes and uh, the dangers therein, but also potentially the pathways to uh, better understanding them through a collaboration across the social sciences and computer science. Uh, thank you both so much for your time. And uh, yeah, thanks again for uh, teaching us so much about thank you so much yeah thank you also so much for having us again I, I just learned so much from this team and I think my big takeaway with doing interdisciplinary work is that it's scary because you have to trust other people so much like I probably only understand 20% of what Kiffy's doing at any given time <laughs> she has this technical expertise I just don't have um, but that ability to trust each other and see value in each other's work even when we don't fully understand it I think has just been so exciting to me we're able to expand what we can accomplish by just one researcher, just one discipline when we work together. So thank you for having us. It's been so great to talk about this with you. Now it's time for Campus Connections, the part of the podcast where we connect today's featured content to other work happening at UMBC. And our production assistant, Jean, has been learning a lot about audio editing and podcast production over the last few months. But Jean, what else can you tell us about this subject? Hi, Dr. Anson. For this Campus Connection, we'll be looking at the work of Dr. Jennifer Meher, an Associate Professor of English here at UMBC. Dr. Meher teaches in the department's Communication and Technology track and is an affiliate faculty member in the Language, Literacy, and Culture PhD program. Her research focuses on rhetoric and technology, and her published article, entitled Good AI Computing Well, discusses the topic of AI and rhetoric, further emphasizing the need for a more nuanced understanding of AI's role in society, including ethical considerations and accountability. The text explores the rhetorical education of AI, emphasizing proficiency in natural language as AI's, quote, Achilles heel. The article further explains that natural language is a symbol system and therefore a rhetorical and ethical endeavor. And as such, if AI is to become proficient in natural language, AI must acquire an ethical disposition on top of understanding syntactic validity and of linguistic cues. The article notes instances of AI systems who have learned and propagated ideas of biases, racism, and sexism, further emphasizing the point that as AI ultimately has to make decisions and explain the decision-making process, the future of AI is not only computational, but deeply intertwined with an ethical and rhetorical understanding of human affairs, which sounds a bit similar to the conversation we just heard. Dr. Meher further argues that all stakeholders involved in AI development or anyone affected by AI must gain this understanding of the inherent rhetorical nature of AI for future accountability. And that's all for this Campus Connection. Thanks so much, Jean, for connecting us to this great content. And thank you for tuning in today to listen to our conversation. As always, as you ponder whether this is my real voice or something that's been churned out by an algorithm, I encourage you to always keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson. Our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno. And our undergraduate production assistant is Jean Kim. 
Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3-sponsored events. Until next time, keep questioning.